the only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone and this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined, as always, by the writers for The Athletic, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello, mate. Hello. And also by the Arsenal legend, the fullback, Mr. Lee Dixon. Hello, Lee. How are you? Uh, yeah, doing fine, thank you. <laughs> I had a week off last week, so I didn't hear from you. So I was a little bit worried that you, you know, you'd kind of gone under somewhere. But you apparently you've risen. I, I, I have risen like Christ at Easter. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, I did love your um, uh, Lee. I'm saying now, I did love that video you made. We haven't spoken about it yet. Of you um, cycling down to Highbury, being outside the West End, and uh, it just looked beautiful. I thought it really did. Well, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was an impromptu. I, I got an hour's exercise and I thought I went into the city on the bike on a Sunday morning, really early at quarter to six. And it was such a beautiful day and no traffic around. I went, oh, Highbury's not far from here. So that was it. And uh, going down Avenel Road, wow, it's like properly goosebumps going down there again. It was, uh, I hadn't been down there for a while. So I was, yeah, I had to take a picture of the beautiful um, doors, the marble halls and all that. Got quite emotional. Yeah, it was nice to watch. It was a little... Mm. Uh, we were talking about communion the other week. Uh, it was Sunday morning as well. So uh, yeah. um, <laughs> it was nice to see it. By the way, everyone, uh, yesterday, I think we all know, was the 26th anniversary, I believe, of that glorious night in Copenhagen um, when uh, we beat... Uh, uh, Palmer 1-0 to win the Cup Winners' Cup. Uh, Lee, I think you posted a photo as well, didn't you, of uh, of the boys after that night? Yeah, and um, I, watching all the old clips and everything, and I, was, I just watched the, the kind of short highlights um, again, and uh, how we how we won that game it was just amazing. <laughs> I mean, I gave two penalties away in the clips I saw. <laughs> Well, it's funny, actually. Uh, I'm, my son, Alexander, who hadn't seen that game, was watching it. And he, he looked at me, or watching the highlights, he went, we got battered that <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah, well, it did, it did kind of sum up that group of players. Though. It, was, it was an amazing night. And I'm sure Amy included had a really nice celebration afterwards. My God. Well, it's not just the, <laughs> not just the afterwards. It yeah. was the whole... I, I was just thinking about, you know, I was watching some of those clips again and it, it was almost like it was quite nice to see them for the first time. Cause, yeah. You know, it was one of those where we'd spent a few days in Copenhagen and by the time the game came around, most of us were absolutely goners, semi-comatose. Um, yeah, the players were the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, i tell you one thing I remember that was great is that obviously 1-0 to the Arsenal, the song was was the, was the hit of, of the day in that era. And um, that as the night wore on, we basically got into a situation where you were only allowed to say something to anyone else in the tune of that song. So it'd be like, <laughs> do you want another beer you know, or whatever? Like literally you could only talk in that tune. Um, and somehow the next day we, because getting in and out of Copenhagen, there was a lot of Arsenal fans that went um, and journeys were a little bit uh, around the houses to get in and out. And we ended up flying home from a place called Aarhus which is uh, not Copenhagen, but we somehow, we got some sort of bus and ended up being dropped outside a field where the airport was sort of about two miles away over the fields. And we <laughs> thought this was a bit tricky. Anyway, somehow we persuaded some passerby to drive us to the airport. But it, we spent most of that time sort of singing Aarhus in the middle of Denmark, according to the Madness <laughs> tune. So it was just that kind of time. It was magic. It was a very, very lovely, uh, lovely few days. I think also, by the way, the other song I remember singing a lot was Georgie Graham's Magic Hat. And when he saw the cup in his cup, he said, I'm having that. Oh, I spent about half an hour walking around the house singing that yesterday just to really annoy the family. And um, by the way, before we start, uh, some correspondence. We got a message sent to uh, Teo, our producer, after last week's show. I'm going to read this in full because it's just lovely. Uh, from Metin Hussein. Uh, I wanted to thank you and the Handbrake Off team for the Bob Wilson interview. It's always great to hear him talk, but I was so moved by hearing what he had to say about the Anderlecht game. I was lucky enough to be there that night, and because kids used to get pushed down the front in those days, 
I ended up on the pitch at the end. Not for long, as I had to go and find my dad, and it was all a bit too much for a nine-year-old. How hilarious. <laughs> but I can still feel the hallowed turf under my feet 50 years later. It was the most incredible night. There was such disappointment after the first leg, but it was all blown away by what I remember. Great goals on an irresistible wave of mass emotion emanating from the crowd into the players. The next day we had to be at school and I couldn't understand why we had to do lessons when last night everyone had been dancing on the pitch because the greatest thing that could ever happen had happened. Hmm. Also, it was, it was great that Mr Wilson talked about Frank McClintock, who was an extraordinary leader. As for his language, I was so shocked when I heard him shout at Bob Wilson, who went to pick up a loose ball. Leave it, you f***ing <laughs> <laughs> It seemed so harsh. Well, yes, it was. Anyway, thank you and keep doing what you're doing. Uh, thank you for Metin for that. Um, by the way, he's talking there, Metin, about um, Frank McClintock, an extraordinary leader. We are going to talk about another extraordinary leader today, uh, Tony Adams. Uh, and um, one of the, the amazing things uh, about Tony Adams, he stayed at one club. Very, very few players um, stay at one club. Uh, we were going to ask the uh, the panel, uh, favourite one club person in football. I mean, is there anyone else beside Tony? James, we'll bring you in first. I don't know, you know. I mean, I, I struggled with this question because, like you say, the, the list isn't that long and it's getting shorter all the time in terms of players who've actually stayed with one club. I'm sure there are plenty of staff members who've who've done that and who you could pick out and Amy would probably know a few. In terms of players, the one that springs to mind immediately as a one-club player was Francesco Totti at Roma. Now, I know most Arsenal fans' memory of him is him clashing with Martin Keogh at Highbury uh, back in 2003, I think it was. But he did come out with a brilliant quote where he said, one title, one with Roma is worth 10, one with another club. And I like that a lot. It's a good job too, because I think he did only win one. (laughs) <laughs> yes, fair enough. Amy, what about you? Uh, I'm going to stay on the Italian theme. Um, of course, we have to have an honourable mention when we're talking about Tony and one club Arsenal men of Dave O'Leary. Um, but I'm going to go Franco Baresi. Uh, growing up, uh, idolising that great AC Milan team put together by Arrigo Sacchi, um, who were the glamorous... Uh, uh, absolutely exceptional team of their time. There was nothing like them in the late 80s and early 90s. And Baresi was known as a sort of, in those days, modern day Beckenbauer because he had that kind of libero style. So he was an incredible defender's defender. He's quite short, only five foot nine for a centre half. But he, and he was absolutely tough as they come, but he also had a, a sublime way of playing with the ball. Um, and, and, when you compared that to the way that our slightly more traditional English centre-halves were at the time, uh, Baresi kind of s- seemed to represent something really special and, and different. And in a way, that was the, the we saw more of that in the latter-day Adams when he had that freedom to come up and score great goals with his left foot or, and, and <laughs> be more involved in the play. So, it, yeah, I'll go Baresi. Uh, we could have Maldini from that team as well, by the way, uh, I think. Uh, uh, Lee, what about you? Is there anyone else aside from Tony Adams who would who would figure in that, this sort of conversation? Well, well, you've just stolen my thunder, both of you, because um, <laughs> I actually picked... I wasn't sure whether it was world football or just Premier League. So I had two. So my world football is Paolo Maldini for the same reasons that Amy's just mentioned. So it's pointless me going over old ground, but he was just a fullback that I just love watching and that, that back four that they had was kind of, you know, we we kind of watched it. You know, we didn't all sit in a room and watch them and go, oh, let's copy them. But it was always talked about. And then, you know, over the years, we, we were talked about in a similar vein, not as good as them, but we were mentioned in the same sentence. So that was, they were kind of like my idols. And Maldini, although playing at left back, was uh, slightly better with his left foot. His right foot was pretty good as well. Um, but then... Because I didn't listen, I also, Ryan Giggs, that's a special mention because of um, playing at United for all those years, 13 titles, and tried my best to kick him all over the place for the amount of years I played against him. So he is he definitely got to be the one that stands out with Tony. And obviously he's John Terry and other people, but... And, uh, <laughs> Can't believe you went there, Lee. But yes, no, it's just, it's just popped into my head for some strange reason, which I've got to sort sort myself out. I don't know why that happened. <laughs> Can I just tell a Maldini story that just quickly to make everyone feel a bit better? 
So um, Maldini's father, Cesare, was the Italy manager for a while while Maldini was playing for Italy. Uh, and I was sent along to the first game of his management because father and son, it was a big story. They played in, um, in Palermo uh, and it was a big deal. Italy used to go and play in, in different parts of the country, uh, not, not in the same way that we have over here where it was, you know, it's Wembley. And um, so people are very, very excited when it's their turn in their city for the national team to turn up. And we went along to a training session the day before and the players, there was hundreds of people kind of camped around trying to catch sight of the players as they came off the pitch of the training session to get on their coach. And uh, I just remember Paolo Maldini coming by looking unbelievably, heroically handsome, obviously. And there being a, a, um, a, a little lad nearby screaming at him, Paolo, 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 you know. <laughs> and, and he came over to this little boy and the boy gave him his phone and said in Italian, but it said to him, Paolo, say hello to mama. <laughs> so <laughs> Paolo Maldini had to have a chat with his little boy's mum. Everybody <laughs> loved him so much. Paolo's son, Daniel, made his debut for Milan, I think, earlier this year. So the, the dynasty continues. Lee, I just quick question about Paolo Maldini, actually. Mm. Um, I know that Sir Alex Ferguson once said that he loved him as a defender because he never had to make a tackle. Did, mm. you, did you appreciate that comment? I mean, obviously you knew what he meant, but... Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, I, I you know, I'm, I preach that style of play um, to young players now. When I when I talk to fullbacks and everything, and and that's certainly sometimes critical of, of fullbacks when do, doing my job on on the TV. When you know, I see them making great heroic tackles, and and I'd say you know, I prefer them not to be making any tackles because players like him and that certainly that the whole of that four that that play together and to a certain extent. Um, as I said, we kind of modelled ourselves off them. Is the less tackles you make, the better positioning you are, and if you can be in the right position, um, you know, when out of when out of possession, getting position was the old Arsenal um, um, sort of thread before we go into any game. Make sure you're in the right position, and then you don't have to make any tackles because tackling's hard and yeah. hurts, and you got a chance of losing the ball or getting injured or falling over or going to ground. So if you can just, you know, sweep up and do do the stuff in nice and easy. And he was a master at that. You know, he just the, nicking people, nicking the ball off people, being in the right position. And, and all of a sudden you go, well, I don't really know what he does. Why is he so good? And that's the reason. Um, In terms of one club players, by the way, I was going to talk about Pat Rice, but it turns out he did actually play for Watford for a couple of seasons. Um, yeah. But he's sort of been at Arsenal so long and he comes up so often in conversations. Um, mm. Hearing Robert Pires talking about him. I know you have as well, mm -hmm. uh, Lee. You know, he's, he just seems to be, to embody that Arsenal spirit. So I sort of, I'd like to give him an honourable mention, even though he did go off and play for someone else for three seasons. <laughs> Uh, now we are uh, going to talk about, um, well, one of the greatest players uh, to ever play for Arsenal, um, Tony Adams. I was actually sort of reading up about this. Amy, were you at his debut? Because he, he, no. he was 1983, was that? I'm were afraid you... that was a little bit before my... I mean, I had been by then. I went when I was smaller and then I had a period where I didn't go quite so much and then I started going when I was old enough to go on my own a bit after Tony's debut, so I can't help you there. Because I was, I was at the game uh, in 1983 against Sunderland in the old uh, first division and he was just over 17 years old. And I remember having a similar feeling um, uh, about him. I remember seeing Paul McGrath uh, around a similar time, also about 17 years old, and thinking, this guy's the best player on the pitch and he's younger than everyone. Uh, Lee, were you aware of him? I mean, you were just coming up through the ranks at, uh, where was it, Stoke at the time. And uh, did you know anything about Tony at that point? No, well, not an awful lot. Well, I obviously knew his name, but, you know, when you're, in, you're playing in the lower leagues and I obviously started at Burnley and then went further down to Chester in the fourth division. So you're kind of aware of this uh, elite bunch playing at the top of the... The echelons of football, but you know, you know, you know, watch match of the day and stuff like that. So you kind of know of him, but you again, it's like any player will tell you that you don't realise how good players are until you actually get in Monday to Friday training with them every week, and you kind of that's when you see the the true essence of of what a player's all about. And um, you know, and and he was 
seen beyond his years when I signed and walked up those marble halls and, and up those steps and into the dressing room on that Tuesday morning, the first day that I went to training there. He was kind of one of the first people to sort of loom out the, uh, the 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 dressing room at me and go you know welcome aboard and I was like oh no. and he and he was you know seemed very assured of himself and you know as you would imagine a captain being but also looked really baby faced as well so it was kind of a mixed message he said well you don't look old enough to be that assertive well, stop it Dave O'Leary tells a good story because obviously he was quite a lot older when Tony first came in the team mm. of him coming in and being se- sort of seventeen but acting like a, like a man, like yeah. this confidence, like he'd walk in the dressing room, like, all right, to everybody and say, uh, hello, David, how was your weekend? How's the family? You know, those kind of <laughs> comments that you would expect of a of an older person. He carried himself with this way that they all looked at each other a bit and thought, who's this kid, you know, like talking to us like that? Because the majority of young players that would come through from the youth team would, you know, be very much mind your P's and Q's and keep quiet and don't speak unless you're spoken to because you don't want to do the right, uh, the wrong thing. But Tony didn't have that about him. Uh, and I think even when you, you know, I don't know how much players knew about other players then, as you were saying, Lee, but I think amongst coaches at the time, um, I remember George Graham saying he had no reason in the early 80s or even prior to that when Tony was just ahead of his breakthrough. Uh, you know, word amongst people who kept an eye out what was going on in, in the elite football, everybody heard of this, this Tony Adams at Arsenal who was this leader. And I think he had that reputation even even before he'd made his debut. He used to be up with the England youth teams at Lillish Hall in those days. Um, and people would watch if they were able to go up there and have a look. And it was one of those cases of like his leadership from a very, very young age was, you know, was, was ob- so obvious. Uh, Lee, it's interesting, actually. Sorry, I just want to say, because Amy's talking about leadership there and, and some of the players that we chose... Uh, Franco Baresi uh, being one, John Terry, you mentioned, these are leaders as well. What uh, is there a, a, something tangible that you can look at when you meet someone like that and you think, I will follow this guy? Well, the, the, just listening to Amy talking about him and and and, I've, and obviously knowing him personally and, and grew up in, in you know the, the highlight of his career. It's it's weird when I think about him now because all that stuff that that Amy's talking about the actual um, the, uh, maturity beyond his age, his years and actually you know taking control of situations and going yeah I'm Tony Adams how's the family to David O'Leary and being that and and knowing him now and knowing what what he, what, where, what he went through through his drinking years etc that then it, it, all of that sort of stuff is. I say so. It's not. It's a front, you know. His, his, his football persona. What he's like when he's on a pitch and at training and being Tony Adams, the footballer, is quite plainly a completely different person than than Tony Adams, the you know the human being. Because and that's evident in his. If you read his books, if you re, if you talk to Tony now, you know all of that. So he was a scared little boy, and always and was a scared little boy for many many years, and he couldn't deal with that that insecurity and the way that he dealt with it was to be right front foot I'm going to be strong I'm going to be this guy and he was very convincing at it because we all you know we all in that dressing room would go right tone yeah you know this this is he's going to lead us to these great things that we're going to be able to achieve together but privately he was he was an absolute wreck and so that looking at both sides of him it's and it's an it's an amazing story and i'm privileged enough to know him personally enough to to know the the fears and the scary places that he used to go to not necessarily back then when he was when he was going to that no one really knew what he was going what was going on for him personally you know his close friends weren't you know his close player friends never really got close to him unless they were drinking in a pub with him so he was quite a private person in that respect because he he kept all of that kind of away from um you know away from he didn't really have he he wasn't say he had not many friends in the team of course he did he was teammates but personal friends we i didn't see tony at all outside of the club or 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 a, or a 
team social event you know we, we would go out and have a drink together now and again after a game or whatever but I didn't know him I didn't go around to his house and mix with his family and see him on his days off or I don't think anybody did so it's an astonishing uh, way of how he's come came through that and then became this an amazing human being that was now clean and sober and do and starting his career again in a completely different mind and a completely different body um, so the, the the actual difference between back then and then later on in his career was you you kind of uh, I learned that actually after he stopped drinking and towards the end of his career that I would believe him a bit more before he you kind of it was Tony the he was like an enigma you just kind of followed him because he was this you know, he'd run through doors for you and he'd do all that. Yeah, I'm going to go down that. But as you got to know him later on with his personal life and became Tony Adams, the human being, you kind of go, I'm going to do that because he's a genuinely nice, caring, lovely guy. I didn't think that of him when he was when he was young. He was just Captain Captain and Tony, you know. James, I want to bring you in yeah. here. I mean, obviously, you, you're younger. Uh, you're the the, uh, the baby of the group, if you like. Thank and, you for uh, reminding it's, me. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Um, so when did you first become aware of Tony Adams? And what, what was your awareness? What did you think about him? Well, I suppose as long as I've been conscious, Tony Adams has been synonymous with Arsenal. And the fact that he kind of, you know, predated me a bit, just added to the, the mythology. And what always seemed most extraordinary to me, and you guys will know better than me, is that he was playing at centre-half at such a young age. I mean, you mentioned his debut when he was 17, but within a couple of years, basically, he was in the first team. And, you know, Arsene Wenger spoke about this a lot. If you play young defenders, it's going to cost you. They make mistakes in all the positions that you see teenage players break out. You know, it's usually a striker or Ryan Giggs, we mentioned earlier, on the wing. To be playing in that part of the pitch... I think is particularly extraordinary. And did he arrive? I mean, I'd love to hear from you guys. Did he arrive kind of ready formed or was there a period of adjustment and learning and improving? What was it like when he first came into the side? Do you know what? I mean, as I, I saw the debut and I remember thinking at the time, my goodness, this guy is a prospect. But Lee, would you agree that he didn't really become the world-class defender that we all knew he could until quite late maybe late 20s early 30s yeah I think I, I have to say that that um, what James said about you know defend defenders getting in at young age is, is unusual and I, th I don't think you learn the art of defending until you're later on in your career but Tony obviously um, was so good at such an early age that um, he had he had all that um, in his body anyway. I mean, I was a slow learner. I had to learn the process of how to be a defender, and George obviously taught me that. With Tony, it was it was it was kind of instinct. You know, he, he read situations from an early age brilliantly. You didn't have to tell him where to be; he would be there. You know, and I had to learn where to be. Um, but with but with him, and he then became um, with the freedom that he was allowed to 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 play with both from his own mind and also the, um, from the manager with Arsene, just giving him that freedom. He, unfortunately, his body started to sort of weigh and he had a few injuries, but the best of him was, you know, in that 98 season where he was kind of like, you know, he, he, he just read the game perfectly like he always did and he still had, and he had that little kind of, oh, hang on a minute, Tony can play. Well, we, you know, we kind of knew he could play, but he, but he had a, a kind of swagger about him that Arsene allowed him to play with that became, as you said, that world-class figure with a, with a, was still a captain's armband on his arm. We've um, we've had quite a few tweets in. Uh, people want to talk about various aspects of this. Uh, Dave Mitchell uh, at Tex Elmwall said, not sure the traditional big number six leader stroke defensive general type exists in the same way today. Um, Amy, would you think that is the case, by the way? Um, well, I mean, I don't know. The game has changed, obviously. But, I mean, if you think about how often we've, I know, we've had the conversation about about leaders and captains and Arsenal's case, lacking natural leadership and a captain. I mean, one of the things I remember about young Tony Adams, um, when when he used to go to games, is that obviously his job was, uh, you know, at the back, holding the fort, organising, being strong. That was what it looked like. 
But then sometimes there'd be a period in a game, especially if it was a tight game or, or maybe Arsenal needed to, to ramp it up or get back into a game, where he would go on a barnstorming run and he would get the ball you know, in front of his own penalty box and just go and just power and uh, as far as he could, really, until he was going to lose the ball and then he would give it to somebody else. Um, and there would be this crescendo around the ground of noise and excitement. And it was his way, it was almost his way in football on the pitch of sort of shaking your fists and saying to everybody, come on, you know, step it up a bit here. And he would raise the levels, the tempo, the atmosphere on his own sometimes by just one of these barnstorming runs. It was amazing how often it happened and then suddenly the whole team would, would react to that. It was like it, he was able to do that by example. Um, but I'm not really sure I answered the question about, about number six as they were and, now, and, and are now. But I just think he was such a... Um, he had such presence as a, as a player yeah. on the pitch. But returning briefly to the, the, the question before about um, what James mentioned about you know, being able to make mistakes and how people react to that when you're a young defender. Well, there were times that he made mistakes when he was young and first coming through, and some of them were quite exposing mistakes. And that was part of what made Tony Tony and the way that he had his life and dealt with them. Um, I mean, you can think, obviously, of, of uh, you know, he got a lot of blame um, for an England-Holland Dennis Bergkamp goal, yes. uh, for example, where... Yeah, which was in 1988 in the Euros and I think came back from that and, and had been chastened by that. And that was the beginning of the season where he as Arsenal captain, a very young captain at 21, lifted the league trophy. Uh, that was his reaction. And, there were, you know, even in that season, the game at Old Trafford where um, he scored a, a pretty unlucky own goal. It was absolutely teeming with rain. He got a got a goal uh, to put Arsenal ahead, and then quite late in the game, quite a fluky one from um, uh, Man United on the attack, and and he kind of stretches to try and see the ball out, and it 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 goes in a funny angle and loops really slowly over John Lukic's head, and he couldn't couldn't get to yeah. it, and that was where the next day there's donkey ears on him in a in a tabloid paper, and he was a young man, mm. so he was getting absolutely. <laughs> Uh, unjustly, really, when you think about it, a lot of quite personal stuff from the public, from the media, from fans at, at different clubs when you would turn up, you know, having to be the strong leader that he felt he had to be around the place. And yet the perceptions of him were quite brutal at times as well. I mean, it was as if Arsenal loved him and everyone else out there wanted to try and take the mick out of him if they could and bring him down. That was a feeling at that time a bit. I mean, Lee, that's an interesting point that Amy brings up, um, you know, the the stick that he got. Did you notice a change in him when he started getting abuse like that? Um, no, I was quite pleased because it meant they weren't singing if Dixon plays for England, so can I. So if he was singing about... <laughs> I, I started that donkey thing. It was all my doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, we, didn't need to, we didn't notice a change. He, he kind of took everything... Well, seemingly took everything yes. like that in his stride. Oh, yeah, you know, Tony Adams can deal with it. So, and that's that's the persona he gave out, and that's the one he lived by in the dressing room, in the training ground. So it was like nothing could hurt. You know, we we saw him as, you know, George used to call him his colossus, and, you know, nothing could harm Tony. And so we kind of, it, footballers are really funny creatures. If you don't have to worry about anything and you can park it in a pigeonhole, do do that because you've got enough to worry about yourself. So, if some if Tony's getting stick and he just goes, oh, it doesn't bother me. But fine, okay. Well, that's that sorted. I don't have to worry about that. In real life, if he's your mate, then you kind of go. Somebody's having a go at him or whatever. You go, and you're right, Tony. And he go, no, actually, that's really upsetting me. And you go, oh right. And you take time to take a bit due care and attention about making sure your mate's all right. That doesn't happen in football because you you live from. You live from day to day and, and, in, and in three day kind of parcels of, of recovery, preparation, playing yeah. a game, recovery, and it just keeps going round in a circle. So the more things that are okay and you can go, that's all right, I don't have to borrow about. And that's why, that's why when you're a player, you very rarely express your feelings to anyone because it takes too long. And nobody's bothered because they don't really, you know, you get on the coach and go, how are you, mate? You go, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. You just go, I'm fine. All, all, all a footballer wants to know when they ask you if you're all right is, can you play? 
You go, are you all right? How's your leg? Yeah, it's fine. Okay, that's done. Right, we're playing. Yeah. That's how it is. And so when Tony stopped drinking and get on the coach, and I've told this story before, you get on the back of the coach and you sit there and you go, how are you? To me. And I go, yeah, I'm okay. And he goes, are you really okay? And I go, and he'd want to he'd know if you were all right. And I'd kind of go, um, yeah, I'm fine. And he, you know, the rest of the lads, he'd ask Steve Bold and go, and he'd go, yeah, I'm, or Bold, he'd ask him how he was. And he'd say, um, how are you, Tone? And he go, all he wanted to know was, yes, I'm fine. My back's all right. I'm playing. And Tony would go, actually, I'm feeling a bit sad today, Boldy. And Boldy would go, oh, no. You know, <laughs> because it, it, it doesn't want to know. We don't no. want to know how you are. We don't want to know what's going on in your life. Just tell me you're okay to play. And that's, you know, and that's, I'm not say the difficulty. That's the period he went through, 96 onwards, when he had to learn how to be sober. And he, he made no apologies for that. You know, he'd come in and talk about him, his piano lessons and his reading poetry and the lads would be like really what the you know what's going on you know because we don't care we don't just don't care what's going on in your life so is that is that footballers though or just blokes generally i'm just asking this question because i i just see that from most men who are you know yeah. fine is is enough really yeah but i think it, it takes it's slightly different um because you talk you're talking about a work environment if you if you're sitting in the pub with your mates, you kind of chat about stuff. You keep blokes take the mickey out of each other and don't really get to any depth. They're just scraping the surface. But you go in a little bit with your mates at work. You don't. Most people don't want to. Most blokes don't want to care what their workmates doing. And it's the same in a, in a dressing room. But just because we're teammates doesn't mean to say we're mates we're just people who work together and have got an extraordinary job to do that everybody's looking at and focused on and under the microscope so it doesn't mean to say that we have to be any different than two two plumbers or to whatever job it is so that that's that's where it tony went through that period of going this is how i've got to be and this is how i stay sober so respect it I'm not making any excuses for it. This is me now, and and you know that's that's why you know some people in who don't know him go, God, Tony's a bit weird at times, isn't he? And I say, well, is he? Well, he's just Tony Adams to me because I've always known him as Tony Adams. I mean, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. I want I want to talk about Arsene Wenger, obviously, and and the later years, but th that whole thing about him being a sort of conduit, really. I guess that's that's part of the captain's job. He was very much George's man, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Amy, when we did 89 documentary, interviewed him and, and he... On you know, TV, he, by the way, was it on yeah, TV yeah. this Friday, Friday night? Friday night, 8 o'clock on Sky Sports, is it? If you haven't seen it, watch it. I mean, I'm saying I'm not saying this to Lee and Amy, who have seen it. <laughs> I'll be watching. <laughs> who were in it and Never made enough. it. But it's, uh, it's on Friday at 4. But anyway, you were saying, Lee, sorry. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, in, in his interview, when Amy interviewed him for the for the 89, he was saying, you know, I, he, you know, he was good for George. George was good for him because they were like two peas in a pod, you know, both winners. Um, George, you know, he could manipulate Tony into telling the lads what he wanted to tell him. Uh, tell he tell him to tell us to you know he'd come out of his room having got a new contract and the rest of us would got like five pound bonus um, win bonus and he got like you know hundred grand signing on fee or something I'm, I'm making those figures up by the way um, but that that was how he he was used and and um, George loved him and knew that he was the leader of us lot. And so he could get get his message over in in a in a way that wasn't coming from his mouth. Yeah, we've got a few um um few uh, tweets from people who've got various questions. Um, Ellis James, by the way, very funny comic, a podcaster, friend of mine. Does he still play piano? By the way, <laughs> just out of interest. Do you um, know Lee? I'm not sure, but the the best story about that was he kept saying to us, "Well, he's learning the piano and." And then he, he, I'm not sure he was with Ray Parler tells his story a lot better than me. He was with uh, Ray somewhere and there was a piano and he said, come on, Tom, show us what you've been, you know, learning. He'd been doing these piano lessons for years and he was like, oh, right. So Tony sat, sat down in front of the piano and pulled his sleeves up and then played, she'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. And it was just, <laughs> it was just I think he still plays, she'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. That's the answer to that question. Fair enough. By the way, we've also had a tweet from a friend of mine, Anna, who's Anna Greenwood, Anna Greenwood, who's a Man United fan, 
uh, and I mentioned it, that we were going to have this chat about Tony Adams. Uh, she said, as a United fan, I still think he's one of the most golden of humans. Still in the top five of Desert Island Discs. I mean, basically the top five of Desert Island Discs are Tony Adams and Ian Wright and three others, right? <laughs> uh, but Tony Adams' Desert Island Discs is, is, is a wonderful thing. And he says, uh, she said, such honesty and self-acceptance from, a man, uh, from that sort of hard man era. Mm. Um, Amy, I mean, it's true, isn't it? He, he had to come to terms with, with who he was through the alcoholism and it's amazing how he's come out the other side. I was thinking about this before and and how actually I find it hard to express fully my admiration for Tony. Um, I, I, I don't know how he's managed to do what he's done, which is when I I think it's quite easy to um, put a dividing line in it and kind of say before and after or the old Tony and the new Tony. But I think it's been more of an, from, from what I can perceive, more of an evolution. And when I see him now, I just think he's such a wonderful, wonderful person. Yeah. And you see him do uh, Instagram clips and he's like, come on, Arthur. And he just sounds like that old fashioned, <laughs> you know, young Tony captain that, that everybody just thought the world of and worshipped and thought was a colossus that could carry the whole world on his shoulders. And yet he's got his um, intelligence and sensitivity and you know, a, a, a much more human way of looking at, a spiritual way of looking at almost anything in life. But what I love about it is he somehow combines the two. I think a lot of people who go through a big change in their life do find they leave their old self behind and they become a new self. But when I hear Tony or see him, um, uh, or have the, we have the pleasure of his company, he's both. He somehow, somehow managed to, to be, you know, have a love of the character of the old Tony still very much in evidence in, in, in how he presents himself and he's bold and brash and funny and but yet he's got this incredible vulnerability and a, and a capacity uh, for a man who had a, a you know huge status as England captain, Arsenal captain as this, this great paragon of, of you know strength if you like um, has is able to show this really really human sensitive side. And it's such a valuable lesson for all of us that whatever we think we are or whatever we try to be, every single person on this planet has moments that are incredibly difficult that, you know, that they've got to try and overcome. And the way he's done it is, for me, just fantastically inspirational, but also just he's, he remains this fantastic guy. Yeah, I just wanted to add sort of on a, a personal note, really, that funnily enough, both my parents are alcoholics, so in recovery now fortunately but when tony quit drinking as publicly as he did it was kind of around the same time that my dad was trying to sort of get sober and to have the captain of my football team go through that in such a public upfront honest way was just so valuable to me uh and it kind of normalized my experience and i'm sure Anyone who went through a similar thing in that time would, would say the same thing. And, and I thought, I think Tony's always been incredibly emotionally brave. And I think to be the way he's been, you know, to be talking about, oh, I'm reading this poetry or I'm doing these piano lessons. I think that takes guts, actually. And it did in the 90s and it did in football. And I saw my dad kind of do the same things, you know, like my dad... I remember coming home once and he was painting and I was like, what's going on? There's this guy who works in the construction industry, Irish family, you know, and he was kind of trying to explore, you know, the full gamut of his emotions. And it, yeah, it, it kind of, it, he, he obviously had a massive significance in my life because he was sort of someone I really admired and really looked up to, Tony, who was going through the same thing. And I think people have been a bit sneery about him, in full honesty. Like I think people have maybe slightly... I think there was a period where people slightly laughed at the new Tony Adams. No, uh, I think, James, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think that's... You know, I've watched that from a, from a distance and seen, um, you know, as I said to you before, people who, who know I know him say, well, Tony's a bit of a weirdo and he's a bit... bit, bit and, I, and I take, you know, I defend him to the hilt and say, bit of a weirdo, what do you mean by that? You know, he's... he's, he's what, what Explain what you... Th well, you know, he does weird things like, you know, if you look at the what what Tony's achieved since he stopped drinking and, and also stopped playing football um, 
and the incredible um, caring side to him. You know that what he's what he built in Azerbaijan is, it, you know, take some time and research what he did in Azerbaijan to that football club over there. It's astonishing. He built he built a football club. He built a football um, academy, one of the biggest in in the world. And and you know, and he, he didn't go singing dancing on, on from the mountain top saying, "Look what I've done." That's why probably a lot of people don't know. Oh, he went to Azerbaijan. How weird to go over there! It's it's astonishing what he's done. And then, obviously, Sporting Chance and the legacy that that will leave uh, long into the future. And now he's trying to help and put something back into football. The the, the guy should be knighted in my book. I think what he's done since he um, since he finished football and how he conducts himself. And um, the care and attention and love that exudes that man's body um, is, you know, he should he should be absolutely lauded. A couple of uh, tweets. Ben Law at Lawzone uh, said, my sister was once the mascot. We were allowed into the players' lounge at Highbury after the game. Tony rocked up in a crushed velvet purple suit. <laughs> Most worrying, this was after this was after he became sober, so we can't blame the, blame the purchase on the booze. Uh, that's tremendous. Thanks for that. Uh, we will get to some of the um, matches that he played. Another a forward betting, light foot tip, said, I met Tony Adams as a seven-year-old when we played Gillingham in a pre-season game. The nicest bloke. Um, and he uh, uh, he signed his autograph page. Um, one question, by the way, uh, from George Aston uh, for you, Lee. Uh, who did Tony prefer as a holding midfield player in front of him? I mean, he had uh, uh, Paul Davis and Emmanuel Petit, uh, Gilberto. What were his thoughts on that? Do you know? No idea. He, I mean, to, you know, I don't. I mean, he he can't. When you name the players like that, I mean, I think Paul Davis gets massively under under. Rated over the years, he was a he was a brilliant footballer and uh, one of my favourites to play with. I didn't play with him um, an awful lot because he was kind of you know he got pushed out a little bit and you know he was he was a, quite a bit older than me. So, but he was a brilliant footballer who was kind of did all of the all of that stuff unnoticed. Um, and Manu Petit and Patrick Vieira obviously take the plaudits for the yeah. the way that they played. But Davo, I. I that job in front of the back four in the two centre backs is a, is a was a huge uh, job for anybody. Kevin Richardson as well did a superb job in there, you know, sweeping up in front. And George always said that protect my two centre halves and they'll play forever. And he wasn't far wrong. And so, but I don't, I don't really. I think he enjoyed playing with Patrick and uh, and Manu. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? They were the, yeah. you know, they were the the king of that of that position. The pair of them just none of this holding midfield. Rubbish! It was just we'd play we're playing two in midfield and we run all over the pitch and we're everywhere. That was the yeah. job. Uh, I'd like to know uh, people's favourite Tony Adams moment. Actually, Amy, do you have a favourite Tony Adams moment? I mean, there must be loads of them, but can you pick three? <laughs> um, gosh, it's probably unfair. Let the others go first. I'll see what's left. James, what have you got for us? Well, then, I've got up two. So. One that I think everyone might cite, which is obviously the 98, the goal on the final day against Everton to seal the title. You know, that, that sums it all up, as Martin Tyler, I think, said in commentary, and it really did. It summed up the new expressive way that Arsenal, and particularly Tony, were playing. But I've also got another moment of his that just has always stuck in my mind. I doubt it's something anyone else would even remember. I think it's from the 2002 FA Cup final. And it's kind of nothing really, but it just showed what a class defender he was. It was a clearance sort of coming towards him in defence. And it was a little trick he used to do quite often where he'd sort of go to head the ball, you know, clench all his neck muscles, make it look like he was going to head it clear and then just pull out at the last minute and let it roll through to David Seaman. (laughs) And I remember him doing that and me just marvelling at it in the stands and thinking that is a guy who absolutely understands his craft, who absolutely understands, you know, defending, positioning, who's in complete control in that situation. And it was kind of as impressive as anything else I ever saw him do. Lee, you were on the end of some um, tongue lashings, I suppose, from Tony and vice versa, I guess. But um, do you have a favourite? <laughs> yeah, I, I've got three in the very short. The first one was, um, 
having a fight with him on the pitch at Highbury um, <laughs> against Cambridge in the FA Cup because he wanted me to go near post. And I was what was said, by the way, because somebody asked that. Durham Gooner asked what was you said between you. We, I mean, I know you swore earlier on this pod, but the, the, <laughs> this would take you to a whole new level. OK, OK, fair we, enough. We basically swore a lot and he right. sort of threw a punch and I threw a punch back and it was just, you know, it wasn't very... We, we didn't... Um, cover ourselves in glory but no. I just remember that because it basically summed the pair of us up um, that we were willing to just I was willing to go let's have it now let's have a slugging match right in the six yard box even though you know, Cambridge had a corner I was like <laughs> no this, this is more important me fighting you right now is more important than that ball so there was that moment there was the moment after um, winning the double where we um, we went to, to Dover Street Wine Bar for our uh, celebrations after and all the lads were at the bar having a drink and Tony had a I think I've told this story as well Tony had a little chair in the corner it was like a, a throne more than a chair in the corner of Dover Street away from the bar and he had a little uh, table and a chair next to it for his for his guests to come and sit with him and have a cup of tea and so we took it in turns to go over and have an audience with Tony while he was celebrating and, and enjoying watching us all uh, get drunk and, and not remember that night at all apart from when we woke up next day and said what happened Tony and he said well let me tell you what you got up to so he savoured every moment of that celebration because he said to me you know I don't remember a lot of the celebrations because he was drinking so heavily Amy and I know you're a champion at the bit and you should be what um, have you got well I don't think we can let this pass without mentioning uh the donkey won the derby in 1993 getting revenge over the uh FA Cup semi-final uh, against Tottenham from two years previously um, I, I do believe I might have had the T-shirt uh, that was made up <laughs> around that time. Uh, it was a it, it was a it was a great moment delivered by uh, by Tony. Um, another one I'd mentioned that's just that's not quite football is associated with a horrendous Arsenal moment, which was uh, the 1995 Cup Winners Cup final. Um, and I came back. At those days, uh, uh, the media and the players used to sometimes travel on the, travel together on the same plane. The media would be all up the back, obviously. And we were waiting in the airport in Paris, just utterly, utterly, utterly deflated. For, or, or, in fact, it wasn't. No, we were, sorry, waiting for the luggage to come through the other side and we got back to Luton or something like that. Um, and I, I remember Tony came up to me and I was just, you know, a kind of fan stroke, uh, just become recently a journalist, um, sitting there looking utterly miserable and he went come on what's up with you and I was uh, 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 you know he said come on pull yourself together and he tried to bring like bring me round and and I afterwards thought what is going on here like it should be the other way around I should be saying to him you know come on you you know you've done great <laughs> never mind better luck next year and he was saying that to me and I remember him looking me in the eye and saying listen you learn more from your defeats than you do from your from your victories this just, is pre. Wow. This is this is pre giving up the booze, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that was 1995. Uh, James already mentioned the um, the Everton game. What I do remember, by the way, about the Everton game when he scored that goal, that fourth goal, I remember looking around and everyone was laughing. I just think everyone was going, "Well, this is very weird, isn't it? That we are playing football like this, and our and our captain, the donkey, has just scored a goal, a left foot half volley into the bottom corner." And turned round like some sort of messianic figure with his arms outstretched. Um, I thought that was a, a tremendous moment. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And the donkey won the derby uh, as well. Uh, was uh, was rather special. Uh, I would like to know your favourite Arsenal celebration because in part two we are going to talk about celebrations. Uh, do you have a favourite Arsenal celebration, a goal celebration that you remember? I have a um, yeah. It's it's a it's a favourite Ian Wright celebration. It has, it has to be. To be. Um, Paul Alcock and the Decanio one. Um, oh yeah, that I mean, he he doesn't get any better than that. That he he absolutely nailed that imitation to a T. It was just his facial, his muscles in his face, everything about him. He stumbled right. He was brilliant at that. He used to practice them in training. He said, I'm going to do this on a Saturday or I'm going to do that on a... But when I saw that, I just went, oh, that was his best one ever. Uh, Lee, we're going to let you go. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much. Lovely as always. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the things that uh, James and Amy have been writing about for The Athletic. Um, James, you wrote a piece. I mean, I asked Lee 
just before uh, the break about best celebrations. Mm. And uh, the piece you started with in that was the Arshavin one. I think I think most of us would agree one of the greatest moments at the Emirates. Uh, but it, yeah. was, it was strange. I didn't realise what he had on his T-shirt. No, I mean, bizarre, revealing a T-shirt of yourself celebrating. It's kind of amazing because I agree with you. It is one of the most iconic moments of the Emirates Stadium era. Um, but when you look at the photographs, the two hair in a way celebrating are Andrea Sharvin and Nicholas Bentner who, you know, had a pretty mixed time in England between them. But So there's a kind of weird little paradox there. But there have been some very memorable ones. I think Lee's right. If you, We had a cut-off point for the piece of post-2000, because I think if you look before that, Ian Wright could kind of have a top 10 all on his own. Yes, quite. And by the way, Charlie George would be in uh, a lot of Arsenal fans' heads uh, for 1971 uh, as well. Um, I, I mean, by the way... Uh, I should say the football season may be on hold. Well, I say that, you know it's on hold. Uh, but the Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers in the business. They're still hard at work telling unique, engaging and informative stories. The Athletic can keep you connected to the team and the sport you love. Sign up now for a 90-day free trial to see for yourself. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod for a 90-day free trial. You also write a piece, James, about... Uh, Paolo Vanazza. Um, this is quite a sad story uh, about how he got stabbed um, and uh, and never really recovered his um, his career. I mean, it is sad, but I also think it's you know on the subject of reinvention, and I think Tony Adams obviously went through that process. I think if you chat to Paolo, and he's a really lovely guy, you can see that he's someone who does have some regrets about the way his playing career went, but has kind of refocused that into what he's doing now um, and how he's taking his life forward from this point. And really, when you think about it, his professional career lasted about, what, 12 years, something like that. But he's got the next 30 years of his life uh, ahead of him. And I think, you know, in some ways that's sort of more important. But it was it was a great conversation. And yeah, when he was 21, he was, he'd just left Arsenal, gone to play at Watford, uh, and he he and a friend who'd also been a, a trainee at Arsenal, um, they encountered a burglar leaving the Vanazza family home. And they were both stabbed uh, pretty pretty badly. Paolo was out of football for a few months. Uh, and although he recovered physically, I think there was a, a significant mental toll there. But more than that, he spoke about how he struggled to deal with sort of the psychological component of the game. He talks a lot about being someone who he trained really well. And that's true. He was really well regarded at Arsenal. Arsene Wenger really liked him, included him in plenty of squads, played him in the Champions League on a couple of occasions. But he, he couldn't always translate that to a match day. And one of the things I found fascinating is he, he, found, he said once he went down the leagues, because he ended up playing in the non-league, actually, Paolo, he said he found it harder because you could hear what fans were shouting at you. You could see the expressions when you misplaced a pass or miscued a shot. And uh, it was just fascinating to hear a, an ex-pro talk with such openness about, you know, dealing with that side of the game and their own their own difficulty in doing that. I mean, Amy, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've been talking about Tony Adams uh, on this podcast and how he, he did seem to truly believe he should be there from 17 years old. And and reading James' piece about Paolo Vanazza, it seemed like he had the opposite problem. Paolo Vanazza just did not believe that he really belonged at the top level. And that was part of the reason that he ended up not belonging at the top level. Maybe. I mean, I think that the psychology of pressure is um, a massive thing that's probably always been there in football. But we're much more aware of it now. And people are, even at youth level, I think they try very hard to uh, to help young players in the game to come to terms with how to deal with pressure uh, as part of their education, if you like. Um, it was something in the old days that you either could handle or, or, or not. Um, so I, I still think it's a, it's a big deal and we see it, well, not right at the moment, but when football is on generally, you, see, you can see players who's, who suffer from confidence and others who feel like they can get on with, you know, with all sorts of situations and play on. I mean, just looking at the season as was until it stopped. You can take Granite Xhaka as someone who is a fascinating case study um, and how things got too much. And uh, and then he managed to come back in an unbelievable way. And then you can look at people like Lacazette, who, yeah. you know, has, has found things, you know, increasingly just got 
got more and more difficult to play in the way that he might normally play. Um, so I think the psychological element of a game is a kind of uh, an area that obviously they don't do anywhere near as much training in as they do on their physical stuff, but it's it's huge. Uh, and by the way, I forgot. I've I realised I didn't ask you about your favourite goal celebration. By the oh, way, oh good. I was uh, I was hoping you'd come to that. I'm not going to adhere to the uh, uh, yeah. uh, after two thousand onwards thing. No. Um, and I'm gonna gonna spool right back to Sammy Nelson because Christ, <laughs> if you can score a goal and whip your shorts down <laughs> to your own crowd uh, as he did uh, against the uh, uh, in front of the North Bank, I think after equalising against Coventry. Um, if you, if you haven't ever seen the photograph, Google the photograph and the reaction, the faces of the crowd, who are the closest to uh, mm. Sammy Nelson. Sammy Nelson's backside um, are really a picture and a half. Yeah, I was one of those faces, by the way. My head was directly level with Sammy Nelson's backside. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Um, I just want to, I know, by the way, Amy, I know with, with football on hold at the moment, although they are having discussions right now about how they're going to bring back the Premier League, um, there are there is some talk about, uh, in the, the transfer signings that Arsenal might make, Thomas Partey, Gossip. I mean, is it all nonsense or, or is there any substance to any of it? I imagine that there is substance in the sense that you, you would think people behind the scenes are try, you know, trying to do some work which would involve dealing with you know, contracts, ins, outs. I mean, there's various players who were coming to that crunch point of their contract at Arsenal before all this happened, uh, that, you know, that remains an issue um, that they can't just ignore at the moment. Uh, however, on a personal point of view, I can't find myself giving much of a monkeys about transfer gossip right now. When football starts again, come back to me. But yeah, I'm, not, I'm just not bothered. I think it's ja nonsense. James, do you feel the same way, really? I think I do, really. I mean, you know, I, I'm still a fan. If someone says, oh, you might be getting this top player of course you know my heart skips a beat but in the current climate it, it doesn't feel particularly realistic uh you know if you look at Arsenal in January they didn't spend any money did they 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 did loan signings of uh, Pablo Marie and Cedric Suarez they didn't want to spend a huge deal think if you think of what's happened now to the economy you know uh I think there's almost no chance so I think the transfer market as we know it is going to change quite dramatically and I and I, I have a strong suspicion that fees particularly might be a, a thing of the past for, for, for a while at least. Uh, before we go, let's have a uh, Tony Adams themed song. Um, James, we'll start with you. Oh, tough one for me this week. I really struggled actually. I was desperately googling songs about Tony, songs about leaders. I, in the end, uh, went for another Tony. It's a bit of a soppy one, but I went for Tony Bennett. Our love is here to stay. <laughs> okay, uh, Amy, what have you got? Well, I've gone for a very um, uh, underground uh, song from the mid '90s. There was a bunch of guys who used to sort of be part of the Guna and that kind of fanzine movement. Um, and someone created a, a, a kind of alternative homespun uh, band of, of creating Arsenal-related music called The A-Team. And there was a song called Ooh Ooh Tony Adams. And um, I hope that uh, Tyra can find this. It's absolutely superb. It's a kind of uh, sort of jazz funk instrumental piece. And um, and the, uh, basically, each of the as each of the instruments comes in, they it, the uh, the vocalist uh, says on bass, David on Seaman. Bass, David Seaman. On drums, Lee Dixon. Nigel Winterburn on congas. Stevie Bold Tony Adams on ooh, ooh, Tony Adams ooh, ooh.
Congress, Nigel Winterburn, on Cowboys, Johnny Jensen, and so it goes on. Uh, Maracas, Ray Parler, Vibes, Glenn Helder, um, uh, uh, the horn arrangement, Dennis Bergkamp, um, and then ends spectacularly with Bruce Reuk on bagpipes. Anyway, it's a great song, and uh, wow. that's the only one that I could possibly choose. It's great. I was, um, uh, yeah, I was looking for leaders. Teo actually just uh, just WhatsApp me, but I had it anyway. Uh, the Shangri Las uh, leader of the pack. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. That uh, well, he he was, wasn't he, Tony? Let's be fair. And the way the way everyone has spoken about him, there's been a lot of love. Uh, for Tony Adams and continues uh, to, that continues from all Arsenal fans. Um, thank you to Amy. Thank you to James. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. Thanks to Lee Dixon uh, and also thank you to Tayo for producing the show. This has been the Arsenal podcast for the Athletic. I'm Ian Stone. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>